Let's take a little time to reveal The prehistoric stories that the earth once concealed Mix them all together on this ancient land It's time to spread some paleo Hello, welcome to another edition of Paleo Jam. I am your host, Michael Mills. And in today's episode, the first one recorded in the new year of 2024, in fact, on January the 1st, first day of 2024, I am chatting with uh, Jack O'Connor, who's doing his PhD at uh, Monash. Um, I think I can describe him as a paleo artist sort of thing, but we'll, we'll let Jack describe that because I did look at his... Instagram feed, and he's kind of described himself as a paleobiology researcher, psychon presenter, blender necromancer, PowerPoint and thing. Anyway, um, welcome to the show, Jack. Thank you so much, Michael. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And um, well, let's see how it goes first. You might change your mind. <laughs> first impressions are good. Yeah, yeah. So, so how would you describe what your career is where your career is at at the moment what are you what what's your what's your you know short 10 word bio in 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 words wow uh so your your chaotic description is pretty apt i am indeed a phd researcher here at monash uh i focus mainly on 3d reconstructions is probably the overarching title. I love working with uh, free programs like Blender and PowerPoint and teaching people how to use them and then also making crazy things myself in order to show off some of our prehistory. Cool, cool. And there's a, there, there'll be a link in the, in the notes where they, people can see um, uh, some of these models that you've done, and we'll talk about each of those models in a little while on on Sketchfab. And 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 if you are listening and you can get access to Sketchfab while you're listening, I reckon that's a pretty cool thing to do as well. Um, but before we get to where you are now, um, one of the things I like to to talk to some of the guests about is like, well, how did you get to this? Are you are you the dinosaur kid that now goes to paleontology conferences and dinosaur digs and gets to build these cool prehistoric animals, or did you come another way? What 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 was what were you doing as a five six year old? Oh wow, I, I am. I think I like to describe myself as an animal kid. It's yeah. not, I loved, loved dinosaurs, but I've also had the same love for pretty much all of it. Uh, my, I, I was never really one that was like dinosaurs. That's the be all and end all. That's exactly what I want to do. But I, I, I loved looking at giant prehistoric squid, giant, uh, like marsupials, giant mammoths, all of that sort of thing, the whole breadth of, of life. And then also today's life as well. My, my undergraduate background is in conservation biology. And that's where a lot of my work has been done in internships and things like that. So I, I love looking at these things as not just rocks and, and impressions of fossils, but what were they like as living animals? Yeah. And I guess that's where the model making comes into it. And, and, 
in order to, you know, one of the things we constantly say to people is like, if you, to, to understand what animals where we've got the fossils of look like and moved and behaved, it's really important to know what they're similar animals that are alive now. So I guess that that's been really helpful. I couldn't agree more. Uh, that's, that's very much the philosophy. And my main supervisor, Alistair Evans here at Monash, I'm part of his evolutionary morphology group here. Uh, and that's his philosophy is that you really can't understand extinct animals unless you look at living ones. Sure that there are some, there are some weird examples of animals that don't really have very many living analogs, but even then they're still governed by the same physical laws, by the same, by gravity, by coloration, by predation. It's all part of that same system. And I just, I love thinking about it as this huge moving nebulous. It's fun. Yeah, it is, isn't it? That whole, when, when you're reconstructing uh, prehistoric environments, not just the living organism. One of the things I loved about prehistoric planet the most recent mm -hmm. that Darren Nash was involved with was there's there's plausible speculation in it. Um, what what are your thoughts on on how far do you go when you've got a model and an environment an environment in terms of of what you can and can't do? What's what's the limit? Because a lot of a lot great... of paleontologists, yeah, a lot of paleontologists and scientists are like, oh, there's no evidence for that, so you can't then do that. <laughs> well, then you just get to have a picture of it just doing not much, aren't, aren't you? You're you're extremely right. And look, it's it's a great question and it's a really difficult question. Because even if by some miracle you were to get a perfectly mummified or preserved extinct animal with all the muscles or the bones or the tendons everything, the skin, the fur, even then, we still don't have inferences for everything to do with its behavior, its interactions with other animals, its interactions with its environment. There are going to be educated guesses no matter what you do. And that is a perfect, that's a perfect, like, ideal scenario. There are so many other, especially here in Australia, where we get uh, fossil specimens, where we're lucky to get more than one bone attached to an animal. So there's going to be educated guesses. And I think that as long as you're trying to keep things within a, a framework, uh, for example, for me, when I'm making an animal walk or making an animal move, as long as it, it works with the skeleton, that's kind of the best we have. Uh, if I'm looking at an animal that has examples of muscles, I can try and incorporate those into it as well. But you, there are levels. There's always levels. And one of the things I loved about Prehistoric Planet is that it doesn't shy away from that. Even in the behind the scenes, it talks about that. And we're never going to get, uh, unless we somehow invent a time machine, uh, we're never really going to get that exact view because we're not even seeing 99% of the animals and plants that would have been around at that time. We don't even have remains of them. So... We kind of do the best with what we have. It's a, it's a fascinating thing, isn't it? That the people don't realise how incomplete the fossil record is. And I think one of the really cool examples is some of the research that came out a couple of years ago about where it talks about well, how many how many T Rexes lived across the time the T Rex was a thing? And they go, oh, maybe about three three and a half billion. And it's you know it's a it's a probably a slightly contrived figure, but it's like over a few million years, maybe three and a half billion 
T-Rexes. How many have we found? Well, we found bits from, I think, about 30. Mm -hmm. Now, <laughs> and the other thing is that when an animal dies in a rainforest, what happens to it? Well, most of the time it gets recycled and eaten and stuff. It doesn't. So that happens and you're not likely to fossilize. So there are a lot of rainforests back in the Cretaceous and the Mesozoic. There's a lot of things that we will never know about. Individual organisms exactly. that we'll, we'll never know about. Um, so I, I want us to, to, to now talk about the, 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 the four models that you picked. Um, we're going to start with my favourite Australian megafauna, um, Thylacoleo. Um, I won't call it by the other name that people call it, that comes from the Northern Hemisphere, the marsupial something or other, because it's not a one of those. The marsupial cheetah. It's not a... <laughs> yeah, it's not a, it's not a cat with any description. Yes. Um, and and for me, as somebody that's 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 you know, and I've spent lots of time in Narakor. I've sat with Rod Wells in the place we've got a podcast episode where I'm sitting with him in the place where he found, like in in, in Victoria Fossil Cave, where he had sat 53 years beforehand. We we recorded this this episode, the particular episode. And so I've, I've always had a fondness for Thylacoleo, but there's something really quite special when you see the skeleton moving. It takes it to a different place. What's it like for you? And we will and we'll travel backwards. When you see the final version of it and you're putting it out into the world, what, what's it like to, to for you to see this creature alive that you made come alive? It's thrilling. Uh I I I think that like probably a lot of model makers might tell you it's it's so easy to see the faults and the details yourself because you've sat with this model for so long but once you see the final thing and it's moving and it's cycling it, it really does the whole bring it to life thing it seems a little cliche but it's honestly true because it it feels more like static bones it feels more like you're watching an animal on the screen and being able to rotate it around and zoom in and look at the different aspects it's just it's so it's so exciting and it's i i like making models that five or six year old me would have loved to see I, i'm making that for for that sort of person who just really wants to see this thing and maybe if if somebody finds a small fragment of thylacoleo bone, they can look at this model and be like, oh, this is how it would have sat in the skeleton uh, instead of having to go to wherever they need to go to find the most articulated model. It's uh, hopefully useful for people. Yeah, look, I, I think it absolutely is. And, and, and I mean, what was it? What was it about the making of models that drew you to that? Because... You, you 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 do illustrations as well i have yes uh i it, it's strange i've never in my life considered that i would be in any realm of art at all i never really was that interested in art growing up too much i'm a terrible drawer uh but what 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 did it for me was i as i'm making figures and presentation i love making presentations and part of that was how can I show something visually to the best of my ability, just upskilling it and, and beyond that, 
learning the anatomy of something, honestly, I think that one of the best ways to learn skeletal anatomy is this process because you really have to think about every bone and how they fit together and how they move. And it's such a more tactile way of doing it than reading through 15 papers, really. Yeah. So, so what, what is the process? So you, you, the, the models that you used, uh, like the, 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 some of the bits of skeleton comes via uh, VAMP, some of the stuff. Yeah. Which is, yeah, the, and, and we've got another podcast episode chatting with, with Alice Clement and the team on the virtual Australian museum of paleontology, which is a yep. brilliant resource. Um, so, so how do you get from the models they've got on their side to a thylacoleo going for a stroll? It's a, it's a little bit different. So I have tried to, for each of the species that I've reconstructed, use a bit of a different process uh, to end up with a similar result at the end, but based on the fact that VAMP is this great new, uh, this great new thing, this great new, uh, essentially, database of 3D models of uh, of different things. And I had some great conversations with uh, Jacob Van Zogel and Aaron Kamen's Alice Clement, uh, not just at uh, uh, not just online, but also I got to meet quite a few, uh, all three of them at CAVEPS at the recent uh, conference, uh, Melbourne Museum, and. I just wanted to support the program in some way and looking through the models, the one that's by far the most complete that they have on there is Thylacoleo. And I had already done my honours project on Zygomaturus. We've got some, some projects in the background looking at the way that Thylacoleo bites on these kinds of animals. And I was sort of inspired by the, the great Peter Trussler and his old reconstruction of Zygomaturus with a thylacoleo jumping on top. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to have a go at it. Uh, there's a lot of the bones are there to free for anyone to download. And I want to see what I can do to reconstruct it. And given that we have people who've worked on the thylacine here in my lab, I knew I could get some, uh, some things that could help fill in some of the gaps. And then I sort of took it from there. So when when you're 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 working on the model and you're working out how what kind of gait the animal has as it walks. So for example, on the Cyderops, which is a which is an amphibian, is large amphibian. Yes. It, you know, it almost like walks lizard-like. That sort of sideways kind of shuffle that they do. How mm -hmm. do you what 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 were some animals that you looked at? living animals as, as well as looking at how the skeleton of thylacoleo existed to be able to go, okay, this is, this is how I will make this beast walk. That's uh, another brilliant question. One of the things that I try to do is I, I weirdly try not to look at too many videos of living animals when I'm reconstructing the gate. And the reason for that is I, I don't really want to be influenced too much by it. When it comes to the skeleton itself, if there are missing things and gaps, uh, of course, I need to have a look at it. But uh, for example, I didn't really look at the way a giant salamander walks for, for Sidorops, which is probably the best living analog. What I do instead is I try and track down fossil footprint traces. So for Thylacoleo, we've got some great ones. We've, there are some brilliant ones in South Africa for Temnospondyls like Sidorops. 
And then I have a look at the papers and I see what are they comparing it to? They're saying, okay, Sidorops is probably walking more like a crocodile does and walking more like that. And then I have that in my mind, but then I base the gait pretty much entirely on the skeleton. So it's going to be the range of motion. What can the limbs physically do? What can this thing walk like in order to not fall over? Uh, because uh, a lot of these animals are quite big. And so if you've got more than two legs off the ground for a long period of time, you got to either be moving fast or doing something wacky because otherwise you just get a face plant. So I, I try and keep it as tied to the physical morphology as possible. And it's probably not 100% accurate, but at least it's uh, a method. Yeah, and, and again, I guess it comes back to that that stuff we talked about early on. It's 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 entirely plausible on yes. the basis of the evidence that we have. It is an in, entirely plausible that this is how it walked. Um, you know, it clearly, like Sidorops, clearly didn't hop. <laughs> well, look, I I'd <laughs> say probably pretty unlikely. Uh, in the water, was it hopping along the ground? Who knows? It might have been having a party of a time. But uh, as far as I can tell, I'm trying not to stretch the bounds of reality too much. Yeah, yeah. All right. So, so what do you want? And 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 doing PhDs and and research and being at uni, you, you can see a thing and then it's like, oh, that's a, and then that takes you down a pathway that you hadn't expected, uh, which is one of the cool things about studying. But what's, if you were to, to say, okay, this is what I want to be doing and this is the really annoying question of like, where do you see yourself in five years? But but what's, what's, what's the job? What's the job that you want? Uh, and at the moment, bearing in mind that you may change this as you get through the PhD? I almost certainly will. Uh, I think that I, I'm not married to the idea of necessarily going hardcore into research. I might. I love science communication. Probably that will be at the core of whatever I end up doing. Whether that is going on to be some sort of animation consultant, whether that is doing physical modeling, uh, helping with some sort of toy making facility in order to produce models that I think are more interesting or fill up niches that don't exist, whether that is becoming more of an educational type of situation. I love teaching. I love that sort of type of thing. I don't know, but it's going to have those themes at the heart of it somewhere. Yeah, which is it. It's and it and it's. I suppose it's really totally okay, and it's cool that you're okay that you don't know that mm -hmm. that, that that you you that you have as a core. There's like there's this core group of things that I will that you think you'll keep coming back to. Like for me, with with the stuff that I do, it's always I always keep coming back to writing and songwriting, whether it's is whether it's as as a singing paleontologist or uh, the Mary Anning show that we did where I get to write or this show we did. Uh, inspired by Blinky Bill, the koala. It's like I get that, you know, for me, all of the meanderings, and I always kept coming back to that core thing. Um, science communication, science cycle presenter, which you've got on your Instagram thing. Um, 
what do you think? What what do you think is the purpose, the role of Psycom? I think it's vital, especially nowadays. I mean, I, on, I actually, I, I take that back a little bit. I think it's vital of all times. I think that it's ever changing. I think that it is a a way of showing people that science is not. Here is a paper that's being published, and that's all we're going to do on it. It is that things are changing all the time. Our knowledge is updating. We're trying new things. And it's it's not looking at the research in a vacuum because sure we can we can do first author publications or whatever you'd like in order to get your your stats up and and all of that but but really is that the point or is the point of it that we should be trying to show what these environments these animals were like and we're testing out this research and we want to be able to to, to show people about it. I think that I think that the purpose of science communication is that it it brings life to the science. I mean we're working on living things, but if it's not engaging, then it's just boring. Yeah, it's it's most people sorry about this, my scientist friends, most people don't read scientific papers. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> They, you they are just correct. don't. They don't, and and because they they are written in a particular way, which they need to be written in because mm -hmm. of the nature of of what the process is. But most people, um, I mean, I post from time to time on Dinosaur University an image of something with a bit of a description, and here's a here's a. Here's a here's a link to the original paper. I think you should read that. Nobody does, <laughs> um, because that's that's not what it's for. But I think I think I mean for me, having played in the science communication space for a long time, what's fascinating for me is is that it's still done in most cases so badly. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. there's, a, there's a there's a bunch of t-shirts that people wear that says science doesn't care about your feelings blah 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 it's like well do you know who cares about my feelings i do so if you want mm -hmm. to engage with me don't treat my values and my feelings with flippant disregard because people don't engage with facts and data they engage with stories you know and what I think is really cool about the stuff that you're doing is that in bringing animals, prehistoric animals, to life, and I think what's really cool is with the skeletal form is like because kids are and, and grown up, we, we we go to museums and you see the skeletons, but to see the skeleton moving, there's something pretty cool about that. It's different. I think that. The way I like to see about it is that there needs to be lots of different levels. If we're just doing science communication in one way, we're doing it wrong. You need those scientific papers out there for people that are interested in that level of things, but you also need articles that are breaking that down in a slightly different way. You also need videos that are just visual, that are looking at it. And you're so right that if you walk into a museum, I mean, a lot of museums now are, the the skeletons that you're going to see are rarely even 
exact models of what that skeleton is. They're either having to be changed so that they can join the bones together, or they're plaster cast of a plaster cast of something, or they're a chimera of a million different specimens. And I, that's why I love not just animating it, but also trying to reconstruct the skeleton itself in a new way. But I think that I think that that's so right that if we're doing science communication, we need to be appealing to as many different people as possible. Yeah, and and not just plonking a bunch of facts in front of them and expecting them to go, oh, I get it now. Oh, I'm so, I, I I do accept that climate change is real now, or I do accept that this is a thing. Why? Because we do. We 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 know. We know that people filter. People filter facts on the basis of their values, and we we it's yes, it's stories. It's all story, all of it. And and I think just you're right. And I also think that stories and facts and data don't have to be separate. They can be mm. together at the same time. You yes, you're looking at. Uh, an animal that's moving and it's telling a story by it's jumping on something or it's walking around, but it's also showing us that is the figures of the range of motion. That is the morphology of this creature. That is the size of the animal next to whatever scale you want. It's just showing it in a different way. Yeah. And, and with the evidence that you have, that evidence becomes the fixed stuff Mm. So that can't change, that can't change, but you get to play yes. in other places. Um, I do use some historical narrative stuff, and what I love about that is that we know we know very little about most historical characters, even really, really well-known people. Napoleon. Let's pick Napoleon, for example, right? So <laughs> Napoleon, we, we know lots about him, and he did this, but we don't know what he had for lunch on the third Tuesday of 1800 and whatever. We we know very little about the conversations he had. We know, so all of that, if you're creating a, a Napoleon story, you get to play, but it needs to be plausible. It needs to it's, be consistent with the things that we know. And I guess the same with with this, um, with, 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 with the Psycon. We've got, look at that, we've got about three minutes to go. Three minutes to go. So back to, to five-year-old Jack. What would five-year-old Jack be thinking of Jack now who, you know, you went to KVAPS, Paleontology Conference, got to do a presentation, got to hang out with some pretty cool paleos. That's true. It's, it's, it's I, you know, I've, I've been to paleo conferences and done things and it's like, and we had paleontology, it's like, you, you get to do that. You you you're doing your PhD. What what would what would that five year old six year old kid who was kind of had an interest in animals? What would he be thinking? I think that Jack would be overthinking it pretty heavily. <laughs> They'd be trying to figure out how did you get there. What are the exact steps you could do? What are what what are the books I can read in order to get there? Uh, I think that. Jack would be surprised by how many failures it's taken to get here, uh, but also really excited. And I'm I'm super happy to to stoke that imagination of that kid because they haven't really left. Yeah, it's yeah. 
Like I was, I was writing poems when I was seven, and it's like, yeah, I, I'm, I just sing my poems now. Um, but it's that interesting thing, isn't it? What What are the exact steps? Because I get asked that, and I'm sure you know. And I kind of asked it a bit of you. It was like, well, how did you get to where you are now? What are the steps so that somebody else can come along and go, right? If I do that, then that's where I'll end up. I've just made my career up. Yeah, it's not like baking a cake. It's it's <laughs> like making a mound of ingredients and it ends up tasting all right. <laughs> yeah, there was there were there there was there was no job for a singing paleontologist anywhere. <laughs> it's so you the, made one. Yeah. Well just but but just started going, oh cool. That's a cool book. That's what? Megafauna. Oh, I should write some things about that. And then, you know, things led to other things and then I'm, you know, singing a the SVP conference in Brisbane to the world's leading paleontologists. It's insane. And I can see you doing the same sort of stuff when you go to these conferences and you've got people sitting in the audience that are people where you've, you've, as a, you've been growing up, you're reading their names in books. These are people that I've looked up to and be able to chat to them is it's a, it's a bit of a dream. It's yeah. Yeah. It's, um, Look, Jack, thank you so much for uh, your chat. Um, absolutely read the notes, everyone. Go and have a look at the models. Um, and you can follow Jack on Instagram. Are you public or private on Instagram? I'm public, yes. Public, so you can follow Jack. And um, that is the end. Thank you so much, Michael. It's time to spread some paleo jazz.